Hi guys, and welcome to this edition of How to Wow, starring Bryony Gordon, and brought to you by M&S Plant Kitchen. M&S Plant Kitchen launched in 2019 when their first vegan-friendly range took the meat-free world by storm. Exactly. And now, my friends, there are 100 plant kitchen products to choose from, which is excellent news for my family. As back in March, my wife, Tequila Tash, and I decided to go all in plant-based. We were in Los Angeles running our very own made-up marathon as we were due to run the Tokyo Marathon, which was cancelled due to, well, you know what. But we'd done the training, I'd booked the time off work, and we had arranged, we had arranged extensive international childcare. You see, the thing is, eating plant-based in California has traditionally been much more of a thing than here in the UK. But that's all changing, and changing at a pace. Da-da-da! Introducing the M&S Plant Kitchen. No chicken nuggets. They look like chicken. They smell like chicken. They're finger-licking like chicken, and they taste like chicken. At least as far as I can remember. It's been a while. But hey, don't take my word for it. Cut to my second eldest son, Eli, in the Evans plant kitchen. Eli, what's going on with the no chicken nuggets? Oh, they look like chicken, they smell like chicken, and they taste like chicken. Oh, they must be chicken. Oh, no, they're not chicken. Told you. And he's had actual chicken a lot more recently than me. But that story's for another day. Sticking with the no chuck chuck chicken now, there's also the delicious, and I mean mouth-meltingly delicious No Chicken Kiev. M&S Plant Kitchen's most successful vegan launch ever, with one being sold every four minutes. There's probably one outside your window right now. Take a look. Largely because of their indulgent garlic filling waiting to explode in your mouth underneath that coating of crunchy golden breadcrumbs. I want one now. And then there's the kiddies' favourite plant kitchen cauliflower popcorn, which we paid our kids in to do this. Plant kitchen! I think it could be a hit. Other scrummy treats include PK posh hot dogs, PK green Thai curry, and the to die for PK coleslaw salad, the first ever vegan coleslaw to hit supermarket shelves in the UK. Wow! Talking of wow, it's time now to How to Wow. Thank you, MNS Plant Kitchen, for helping make this show happen. Okay, so tell me about um, tell me about lockdown in Cornwall and your newfound love for the Southwest. Well, I <laughs> well, I locked down. I was in London. I was stuck in my tiny little house in London. Although I'm lucky to have a house, so um, and I spent the whole of lockdown planning my escape. And as soon as we were allowed out on July the fourth, I took off to Cornwall for a month and it was amazing and we did things like go surf well I tried to go surfing um I just found I really needed to see a different uh scenery like to get some perspective I don't know about you but I found myself really in my own head obviously and um and staring at the same and I didn't quite realize how much I went into myself and I think it's so important that we like travel around and see different things to give ourselves perspective and realize that the world is still spinning and that I'm not the most important person in the world. <laughs> well, you are in this interview, let me tell you. So Thanks. you can't fix the mind with the mind and you especially can't fix the mind, the sober mind with the drunken mind. Let's just get straight into the book. Uh, Bryony Gordon, Glorious Rock Bottom. Uh, it says here, uh, chapter two, entitled Surrender. People often ask me what my rock bottom was. They want to know 
when I decided to stop drinking as if there was one single moment, as if there was an epiphany, as if a light bulb suddenly appeared above my head. Hey, that's a real smart idea. And that was that, like waking up one morning and deciding that you're going for a run or declutter the spare room or finally fix the bathroom grouting, like making a decision and sticking to the simplest thing in the world. Maybe it is for some people, maybe it really truly is, but it isn't for me. Yet the first chapter is sort of about what that moment might have been, isn't it? Yeah, so I, um, it's so, like, I do, you know, we talk about rock bottoms a lot in sobriety, and I remember when I went to <laughs> treatment, I remember the person saying to me, that the, the therapist saying to me, addiction is a lift going down, right? So you can choose to get off whenever you want, but if you get back on, <laughs> you will go further down. And it was interesting because the, the I, I decided to stop drinking after a night out uh, almost three years ago now. And it wasn't any worse particularly than any of my other nights that I'd had. Um, but it was, I just, I think I was like hollowed out by self-loathing. I just couldn't do it anymore. So, you know, on a very, on a sort of get down to the nuts and bolts, I had that August 2017, I had had like, I tried to get sober before, um, I'd, I'd run a marathon, my first marathon in April, 2017. And I, I'd sort of done that to, to prove to myself that I could stop drinking. I was like, that this is what's going to stop me from drinking so much. And, and it didn't. So I stopped drinking for the duration of running the marathon. But if anything, I sort of hit the booze harder. It was like, I was having to balance out the scales. So you'd go off and do like a 10 mile run. And then I'd have a pint for each mile afterwards. And I tried to get sober after that marathon because I'd seen this different way of living, but I'd fallen off the wagon and again, and it got really bad really quickly. So I went to a friend's 40th in the countryside and that sort of ended in an assault basically, which I still find really difficult to sort of vocalize. And then, but a few days after that, I, I just went out on the bank holiday weekend, even though I was supposed to be going away with my husband and daughter, I just left them in the house. And the most important thing to me was to get pissed, was to get out of it. Like nothing else mattered. And, um, I just went AWOL on the night. Nothing, nothing terrible happened to me, but I sort of came to in a sort of near stranger's house at flat and to messages from my husband saying, where are you? This is, this is, this is not tenable anymore. Um, you know, you, you, you're making, you're worrying us too much. And I was 37. I had a four-year-old daughter and I sort of on paper had it all, you know, a uh, house in Clapham and a best-selling book. And I was interviewing people like Prince Harry, but I was sort of dying inside, you know? And I knew that if I didn't, get help then that I was going to die and I was either going to die in like one of three ways the first way being that I was going to actively choose to take my own life which is which was something that had occurred to me and I'd sort of start to plan out on several occasions or I was going to die by accidentally choking on my own vomit or falling down some stairs or worst of all I was going to die by continuing to live in this like awful groundhog day existence and I thought if I picked up a drink again I didn't know if I would survive it if that makes sense like my self-loathing was so huge and I had to kind of grab on to what little light there was left in my body and hold on to it really tight and try and get myself better 
So you say, you say nothing terrible happened to you on that last night, but yet something terrible happened, didn't it? And, you know, there's a fine line because what was terrible is is what happened um, to you as a mum and as a wife, you know, and, you know, I'm not accusing you here, far be it from me, but you say nothing terrible particularly happened to you, but even then you sort of... You're being hard on yourself because, of course, something terrible happened to you. You know, you were going to have to deal with the consequences of, of what you didn't do that night, which was get home early enough to be up early enough the next day to go to your, your husband's parents. And so you say nothing terrible happened to you. So even now, you still distance yourself from that narrative. Mm, I mean, I guess I feel still, um, you know, I, I feel that. It's very difficult, you know. Alcoholism is something that we still, a lot of us, you know, we blame the person for, and that, including myself, and I blame yeah. myself for a lot of it. And I don't ever want to go back. What I mean, I guess, what I mean is nothing terrible happened in terms of of, of like uh, of danger to myself. Um, but there was such a fine line most nights, and yeah, it was terrible. I mean, I was about to, I was almost almost certainly, Chris, if I hadn't stopped drinking, I would not have my husband of my daughter now you know I would have lost them I would have lost everything um and 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 I I couldn't square I just thought I saw I was the worst human in the world you know which is probably a pretty terrible thing to have happening in your head the whole time right um yeah. I couldn't believe that there was anyone else out there in the world who behaved like me like what mother would do this what mother would go, would put would prioritize basically drinking and taking drugs over being with their family and I had genuinely thought when I got pregnant I thought this is it didn't occur to me that I would ever return to that way of of drinking I thought that this is the cure this is the cure for my party girls I'm going to party partying ways I'm going to grow up and out of it you know and I remember I obviously I stopped drinking for the duration of the pregnancy but I remember two weeks after my daughter was born, I was like at the pub, you know, and I was like, it was like I had to prove to myself that I was still Bryony, you know, and really what I what I was under the influence of was alcoholism, which is the most, you know, powerful, one of the most powerful things out there. And I always thought that the most important thing to me was my daughter. But really, for the first four years of her life, until I got sober, the most important thing to me was alcohol. And it pains me to say that still, but I have to kind of say it because it pierces a, like an armour in that bit of denial I can sometimes find myself in where I'm like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Or, you know, when I kind of thoughts of a drink come over my head. Um, but I've realised, and this is part of the reason I wanted to write this book, because I remember walking into treatment and the first person I met was another woman who lived a mile away who had exactly the same sobriety date as me and had kids the same age as me. And, and we're still best friends to this day. And I realized I wasn't the only woman out there who um, behaved like this. And I wasn't actually a bad person. I was just an ill person who sometimes did bad things because of that illness, if that makes sense. It was such a balm to my soul, you know. It all makes sense. And this book, in, in many ways, it's a story of three angels. And those angels, she mentioned one there. Uh, one is Holly, one is Peter, uh, and one is Harry. And you've got your little angel, of course, your little girl as well. But it's funny, isn't it? Because this self-destruction, you know, and I've been there, not to the extent that you, you've been there, but I've been there. And I'm sure many of us have been there, you know, one way or another. You know, when, you, when you're in the midst of self-destruction, you know, you are repunishing yourself for the things you've already, or you think you've already done wrong, the things you're guilty of, the shame 
that you had to sustain. And you were also pre-punishing yourself for things you are bound, you think you are bound to still get wrong. You know, and it's this never-ending spiral of, of um, well, it's just horror. And it's funny because you talk later on in the book about, you know, going to 12 steps and um, there's the God figure or the higher power. And it's it's so funny that so many people who readily admit that they've been through hell deny that there's heaven <laughs> i find that such a funny juxtaposition you're absolutely right you know they're absolutely right god yeah but you're right this and also the shame cycle like sometimes i thought i was i was like i i was just drowning in shame right and what would happen was i'd go out and something bad would happen or i'd embarrass myself in some way and then i'd wake up in the morning and i'd be completely horrified i'm never gonna drink again i'm never gonna drink again i'm never gonna drink again then we get to four o'clock in the afternoon and the horror of how i'd behaved the night before was so huge that i was like i've got to drink again i've got to drink again because i a had to numb it out but b i was like i am going to create a new shame which is going to delete this shame or but you know i'm it's gonna that shame that happened last night is gonna get buried under a new shame which is madness but that was the only way i knew how to live so i was sort of like existing i was like my life was like uh, there was like this kind of kfc tower burger of shame above me do you know what i mean like one level after another um and you know and, and eventually <laughs> I was going to kind of like die under it. And I realized, and I remember one of the most powerful things that someone said to me when, when I kind of started looking to get sober was, was that shame dies when you expose it to the light. And I couldn't believe it. That, and keep saying this because I still can't believe it. That there are people out there who have been, who have experienced the same things as me. And with this book coming out, I've had so many messages on Instagram and in my email from women specifically saying, oh my God, thank you. I, I, I've literally thought I was the, the only person in the world who did this. And that's why I wanted to write this book because it's like shame keeps us sick, Chris. Shame will kill us in the end. And either, I remember when I, when I first, when the book, I remember giving this book to my mum to read, which obviously was a, was you know a difficult thing to do and she said to me are you sure about this briny are you sure that you want this out there because it then it's out there and and you know and i'm not sure people are going to react that well to it and i she said i think that you think that lots of people have done the same things as you because you sit in these 12-step meetings and you hear people you know saying you think this is normal but it isn't briny and that reaction was exactly why i knew that i had to to let this book go ahead because because it is normal for a lot of people do you know what I mean like there are this behavior becomes normal and some people have said wow some of the stuff in your book is really extreme and heavy and I'm like it is but it's but it's also real life and it happens and either we carry on ignoring and pretending it doesn't happen and you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of people um are trapped in this cycle of shame and sickness, which affects not just them, but everyone around them, right? Or we admit it happens and we allow these people to admit it happens and we start to get well and we start to heal. And oh my God, I sound like some cringy, you know, kind of spiritual whatever, but it's so important we talk about these things. I'm not an evil person. I'm not a bad person. I'm just another person who accidentally thought that alcohol was gonna kind of help her because guess 
guess what? It's a depressant that masquerades remarkably well as a relaxant, right? It's like an Oscar-winning actor. And it's also one of the only ways that any of us in Britain were taught to cope with things. So you've had a bad day, have a drink. Do you know what I mean? So is it any surprise that some of us get caught in this trap, you know? And I think it's really important we talk about this because alcohol, you know, alcohol is going to kill more people this year than coronavirus, right? Three million people worldwide will die because of alcohol-related illnesses. And yet we don't seem to be doing anything to protect humans, (laughs) From this, from this very legal drug that's sold on supermarket shelves, which in a way adds to the shame of it. Like, why can't I drink responsibly? Why can't I just have one? My friends can. Why am I such a fuck up on a floor? Sorry if I swore. And, you know, I'm not anti-alcohol, but I am anti-us not acknowledging the pain that it causes a lot of people, you know? And, and, and I just, so, yeah, <laughs> I'll shut up now. Never shut up. Keep talking. So, you know, you you keep saying, you know, I was mad, but you weren't mad. The drunken you was mad. The other you was nowhere to be seen because the the drink had moved in and you were sort of evicted. You were forced out. Uh, And when you get to that situation, you know, and you're talking about stoking the flames of shame, you know, you keep stoking the flames of shame or the drunken you keeps stoking the flames of shame to underwrite or endorse the insurance policy that you secretly have of killing yourself. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I guess, yeah, I wasn't, you know, lots of people say like, oh, the real you comes out when you drink or whatever. I don't think that's true at all. (laughs) Um, And I didn't know who I was. And it's kind of, it it came as a real shock to me at the age of 37 to learn I wasn't the gregarious party girl I thought I was. And actually, I'm quite socially anxious. And I find going out difficult and all of those things and to learn who I was. And yeah, and essentially, I was killing myself slowly um and wanting to destroy myself like that was the end goal because I didn't think I was worth it I remember towards the end thinking I'm gonna have to drink all the alcohol in London and take all the drugs in London Uh, and I'm gonna have to destroy myself to have any hope of getting better it was like burning raising a forest to the ground if that makes sense um I needed to obliterate myself. God, it's really, it's just, it's so astonishing to me to think that just three years ago, this time just three years ago, I was in the last days of my drinking and how different I am now in that quite short space of time, what sobriety has given me and my family. They do say in wine the truth in vino verite, which is what you're referring to there, alluding to there, which isn't true at all. But what may be true is underneath all that, you know, maybe... The real you is there. And I think the reason people break down for various reasons, whether it's via addiction or, or, or nervous breakdowns or anxiety or psychological, other psychological re- reasons and conditions, uh, whatever they may be, is because we all have our stories and we all tell ourselves a story and then we tell the world uh, a version of that story and we have other versions of that story for other parts of the world or other people in the world and that is exhausting. And the further the story is away from the truth, the harder it is to keep telling and you become exhausted. And then... then Mm. You take refuge, you know, in whatever escape is available to you. Um, And then you may become addicted to that escape because you're so desperate. But what happens sometimes and what I, I read in your book, and I could be wrong, is that you destroyed not yourself. You destroyed your story to the extent that when the walls came tumbling down, 
you were there. The real, the real Bryony was there. You know, the, the embers. You know, in this mm. particular fire, that was you. You, you were, you were available. You were available for saving, and maybe that's mm. the point you had to get to in order for this process to begin. That rock bottom, yeah. I'm so grateful that I destroyed that version of myself, or that the, the, those layers of denial that I was kind of burying myself under. You know, we talk about um, spiritual awakenings <laughs> getting sober. I remember everyone banging on about those at the beginning and thinking, what are they on about? What the fuck are they on about? And I was expecting like some angel to appear from, you know, sort of, you know, something amazing. And I remember that a spiritual awakening for me was actually just baking some banana bread with my daughter at, at one Christmas, the, that first Christmas of sobriety, and realising that the most ordinary things were actually absolutely extraordinary, you know. And everything I thought that I needed to kind of keep myself happy or successful was all sort of a tissue of lies, you know. I, I didn't need any of that. I just needed quite simple stuff. And this isn't a new story, is it? This is like the oldest, <laughs> you know, know. This happens to so many people. And I, oh, I just, it's, yeah. It, do you know, it really breaks my heart to think of that, Bryony. And and how she, I sort of would do stupid things to try and entertain people, you know. Like people would say, oh, I live my life vicariously through you. And I would take these like quite awful situations and turn them into like witty columns or whatever, or or witty anecdotes to tell people at parties, you know, and they'd all howl with laughter. And so I'd made it like, you're right. Like I created this narrative, you know, of like, don't give a fuck, you know, I'm having fun. And I wasn't having fun. And there's like a massive difference between having fun and being happy. <laughs> It makes for a good biography. It makes for a good uh, biopic, um, but it usually doesn't make for a good ending. You know, somebody very wise once said, "You know, if you want a great ending, it's not about how it ends; it's about when you end it." Yeah. Yes. But also, I've realised there is no. You know, there is what I've discovered is that I'm always learning new things about myself, and you know, I. <clears throat> it's astonishing to me that now I'm I turned forty about a month ago, and it. And it's astonishing to me that at 40, I can be learning new things almost every day about myself. And and um, and I actually have the wonder of a sort of like three-year-old child, you know. I'm almost three years sober and I feel about three sometimes, but in the most positive ways. And, uh, you know, it's – and I realise that this is – that you know, what I thought three years ago, I could not imagine a world, my life without drinking. <clears throat> now I can't imagine a life with drinking. And I kind of, I was thinking this morning while I was brushing my teeth, like, wow, I wonder what's going to happen in the next couple of years. What am I going to discover about myself? Well, what levels of peace am I going to reach? You know, it's like fucking astonishing. It's joyous. Like, I love, I love this. It's wonderful. It's such a privilege to be getting older and experiencing all this stuff. I sound so corny. And honestly, if you, if I'd heard myself saying these things like five years ago, I would have been like, I was so cynical and toxic. I would have been like, ugh, get me away from this woman and i'm so glad i am this woman now well it's because you're growing you've you've not you've not you can't remember what it was like to grow you've been growing for three years yeah and actually there's i remember someone saying to me in treatment peter my 
therapist, obviously not his real name, but he, um, I remember him saying to me that, you know, we tend to stop, um, we tend to stop growing up at the age we discover drinking, you know? And I remember sitting in the room and he was like, how old do you feel today? And, um, I was like, well, that's easy. 15. Doesn't everyone? And he was like, no, Bryony, not everyone feels 15 years old when they're actually 37. Um, you know, not everyone blacks out every time they drink. Not everyone wakes up every morning and basically wants to go back to sleep and takes a diazepam or whatever to knock themselves out. You know, not everyone. And it was just a shock to me that not everyone, even though I thought I was the worst person in the world, at the other end of the scale was this thing that I couldn't believe that there were people out there who knew how to live life in a very normal way. <laughs> who just existed. They just got up and they got on with their day and they brushed the teeth and they had a shower and they went to work and they didn't every second of the day have to question their existence, you know, or feel traumatized by it. It was a quite revelatory to me. You talk about going to rehab and experiencing the 12-step program for the first time. And chapter one, I think, is a crash course. Your chapter one is a crash course in 12-step. Do you think you'd have been able to write that chapter without 12 steps? No, I couldn't do anything without the 12 steps. Um, and it's difficult because obviously you're not supposed to talk about the 12 steps. That's like the, one of the rules of the 12 steps. So I get, but um, I, it has saved my life. It's changed my life. And I, I couldn't, I, I have so much gratitude towards that program and everyone in it. And it's wonderful. I wish the whole world <laughs> could you know, have a 12-step program, or we ran the world on the basis of the 12-step program. I think it's amazing. No, I couldn't, I I, I, I was very resistant to the 12-step program, as, ma as many people are. So I didn't, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have to use it. So I remember at the beginning, I would Google things like why 12-step why programs are rubbish, why they don't work. You know, I was very antagonistic towards them. I hated all the use of the word God. I was like, shut up. Like, you know, if there was a God, I wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. And I couldn't understand why they were all so happy. And I genuinely couldn't. I, I was like, no, none of these people were as bad as me. They couldn't be because look at them. <laughs> They're normal. They've got they've got a shine in their eyes. They're properly smiling in those eyes. You know, I'm like, no way are these people alcoholics like me. And um, I'd get obsessed. And I was also quite obsessive about the word alcoholic, you know, Chris. Like, I didn't like it. I was like, that's an awful word. You know, it, it, it brought to mind, you know, tramps on park benches, which, of course, is one thing of, you know, one way of that is one way of being an alcoholic, but there's plenty of other ways of being an alcoholic too. And <clears throat> I sort of realized pretty quickly that either I could die on a hill over words like alcoholic or God, or I could get better. You know, that was the choice, right? Um, and I, I think 12 step programs are amazing. I, I, uh, they've, I mean, like without sounding like some, I just, you know, everything I have in my life now is because of them, that. It's funny because you mentioned there the fact you were Googling, um, things to do with 12 steps to try and get you out of it. And one of the things you Googled in the end was why, uh, the 12 steps don't work and you could find hardly anything on the internet because, because they do work basically. They do work. They really do. And they do work. And, um, you know, I, there's a reason why that's where most alcoholics and addicts end up. I think that um, it's a remarkable thing, free and available to anyone, you know, and loving. You know, no one judges. There's, so, there's no judgment in there, right? 
I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I do think though, you know, I, I struggle a lot with the, you know, it, it's, there's such a lack of provision for alcoholics and addicts available to us in the UK, you know, um, thank God for 12 step programs really. But I hope that, you know, like I was, this is why this is another reason I wanted to do the book is that it's on a mental health level, you know, the government have over the last six or seven years completely stripped back any drug and alcohol services that existed in the UK. So there is nowhere for people, you know what I mean? Like nowhere at the beginning for people to go. And, you know, and to be honest, rehab is a rich person's game, right? Like if you can afford to go to rehab and I was lucky enough to be able to get a loan for it, do you know what I mean? That's great. But people don't know how to, you know, to take that first step between, um, admitting they have a problem and then planting themselves in a church hall with other alcoholics and addicts and doing a 12 step program. And, you know, I do think there needs to be a sort of like some, something between that is, uh, you know, available to people on the NHS. I mean, alcohol costs the UK economy so much, you know, through sickness, disability, days off work. And, um, and I really do think we need to get better at offering proper provision, right, for people that turn up at the, you know, at a GP and are like, I need help. And I remember it was interesting, though, I, I would I would have done anything other than, like, accept I was an alcoholic and that I needed a 12-step program. I'm probably not making much sense now. I remember begging uh, my doctor for that. There's, like, an in, um, a pill you can take or medication you can take that will, if you take it, it makes you violently sick if you go near alcohol. Um, I can't remember what it's called, anti-abuse. And I remember begging her for this. And she was like, no, no, this can make you really sick. Do you know what I mean? Like, just go to a 12-step meeting. And it was like that inability to, um, I don't know, there's such a stigma attached to alcoholism that I was, I couldn't, even when I was campaigning for better mental health on things like obsessive compulsive disorder and depression, I was actually, at the time, suffering from the very stigma I was campaigning against, if that makes sense. Um, and that word alcoholic is, people shudder at it, you know, but it's it's just a word. And, it, and I think we really need to change our perception of what an alcoholic is or what an alcoholic can be. There are so many things I could uh, say in response to that. So, first of all, one of the things with alcohol is that it's so confusing. Because if you want to kill someone or you want to kill yourself or you want to defend your family, you probably go out, you might, you might go out and buy a gun, okay? And if you wanted to have a party, you might go to the fancy dress shop and buy a sombrero. But alcohol, you know, the confusing thing about alcohol is if you want to celebrate the greatest day of your life, you might have a drink. If you want to um, drown your sorrows, you also might have the same drink. That, that's, that's one of the seeds of confusion right there. Yeah, it's a sort of everything. I do think as well. There's a there's a real. Um, it's well. It's what is our art. It's the, it's, it's what it's, we're brought up. That's the solution to everything. Alcohol. Do you know what I mean? You've had a bad day. You've had a good day. And I, towards the end of it, I was like, it's a day. It's you know, it's rain today. It's sunny today. It's a day with a Y in it. You know, I'll have a fucking yeah. drink. You know, and it it does get you know, and on a, just on a biological and chemical lev level, Chris, it gets its claws into you. So I didn't know that there were all sorts of things like it depletes your GABA levels in your brain and GABA is what you know it's basically what is responsible for making you feel good 
And so they're, they're generally depleted, but your body craves more of it. You know, it's bonkers. And the dopamine, you know, it, it, it you, your body needs bigger and bigger dopamine hits to be happy, basically. So you've got, your sort of body is craving this thing that is also depleting your body of all of its feel-good stuff. It's a really dangerous drug, you know, and I think there's that added shame of, like, it, they put slapped a drink responsibly sticker on a bottle, you know, so why can't I drink responsibly? It's my fault, you know. I think it's terrible. It's really terrible. And I wish we, you know, and I do think we're getting much better at sobriety. Like, you know, young people now, are, you know, are much less into alcohol. But you only have to look at what the government were prioritizing, right, at the end of lockdown to get open. And that was pubs, you know, pubs. And um, you know, everyone deserves a bit of fun, but prioritizing that over gyms and schools and, and all the rest of it, it's like it's so ingrained in our culture, boozing. Well, um, actually, the first thing they wanted to open was uh, the fast and fat food takeaways. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But, you know, things that aren't healthy for us, and they, exactly. spout, this one, they spout this one message of, you know, of, you know, of uh, we need to get fit for the winter and we need to... Uh, you know, not be a beast and all of that. And I'm like, well, you, you want us all to be sitting in takeaways and pubs anyway. If that's, a, I mean, I guess that's probably another podcast entirely. But um, I, I, it's been really hard as a sober person to find ways to enjoy myself that don't involve alcohol. And there's this sort of thing where people are like, you don't drink. Why don't you drink? And I'm like, because I'm an alcoholic. Or I'll say, because I used up my lifetime's allowance of alcohol by the age of 37. Do you know what I mean? Like, people genuinely can't believe it. They they, they, they don't understand it, you know. But I think there's, there's a, you know, there's a huge... People are talking about sobriety a lot more, and I think that can only be a good thing. Well, I think it's a great thing. I think it's an, an amazing thing. Uh, let's have some fun. Uh, so um, when you were trying to um, stop drinking without being an alcoholic, so like, I'm not an alcoholic, but I can stop drinking that one. Um, yeah. Hypnotherapy. Uh, how did that go down? <laughs> how do you think it went down? <laughs> I was like, this will be it. Okay, yeah, I'm like, this will work. That night, I was out and I had like eight star of Praman, do you know what I mean? I was like, no, that didn't work. I would have done anything but do the work. You know, like, that's the thing I realized is that we want there to be, because alcohol is so fucking majestic and miraculous and making us feel instantly better, we hope that there's a way in which we can instantly remove it from our lives without it, you know, without having to do any work. And of course there isn't. It's really, really hard work getting sober. Um, but it's not as hard as the alternative. Okay. So uh, we'll park hypnotherapy. That wasn't working. And then there was the, well, I'll, I'll drink differently. I'll drink different things in the week. I'll, I'll, I'll go from um, the hard stuff to ale because uh, then people won't suspect it as much. And I don't look like I'm an alcoholic as much. And then I'll maybe have wine on Friday. So there was the drinking diary, uh, which represents, of course, a reduction in any chance of me being an alcoholic. Yeah, so I uh, I stopped drinking wine because I was it was wine's fault that I was doing really silly things, Chris. It was wine's fault, it was, and I, what I needed to do is switch to lager. So I switched to lager, and then lager was you know strong continental lagers. I was still doing silly things, so I switched to session ale. I was like an old man. I'd sit there drinking pints and pints of session ale because I could just carry on longer. Um, but I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't an alcoholic. I was in control of my drinking. Of course you were, <laughs> Bryony. And then and then we go to you know anything but. I'm an alcoholic. So how about I become the romantic lush? Truman Capote's romantic lush. How about 
to go there. Yes. So I decided at one point that the problem wasn't alcohol. It was my attitude towards it. Like I had to just relax a bit and enjoy the alcohol and stop being so feeling so wound up the next day about the way I behaved. Just live a little. That's the problem. It's not it's not it's not my it's 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 not the alcohol itself. It's the fact that I've been conditioned by society to think that I'm a bad person. Right. Mm. So I decided, yeah, I've become like a like one of Truman Capote's fabulous swans, you know what I mean? Like I'd be walking around with a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the other, you know, just being totally fabulous. That lasted <laughs> all of about five fucking minutes. <laughs> but the, I mean, you know, there was there was um, there was light at the end of the tunnel in 2016 because you began to collect sober people. Now that's always a very very good idea. Yes, I started. I don't. I don't know. Like I I start meeting all these people who happened to be sober, who I really liked. And they, but they had, it wasn't like they'd always been sober. They like, they had once been really heavy drinkers and then they were sober and they, 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 they called themselves alcoholics. And I was like, and I was fascinated by them. Like, it was like, it was like a David Attenborough documentary. I just wanted to find out more and more and more and more. And of course they say that you, you start attracting into your life what you need, you know? And I think of those sober people that came into my life as sort of glorious angels, really, who, who got me to, you know, where I needed to be. Thank God. And I can always tell now when people are like, when people just kind of go, Oh, you're sober. That's interesting. And then when people just drill you down for all the details, I'm like, I'll, I'll yep. see you. <laughs> you know, here's my number if you want to have a proper chat. You know. But that's so lovely. And I'll tell you what, that that was the same. You, you know this. It's the same when you do you're about to run your first marathon. Before you even think about it, you know, may, maybe you've secretly announced it to yourself, but you've not announced it to the world. You do all this secret investigation, and and you know that's good news. That's that's the good you trying to help the not bad you, but the ill you out. Yeah, but also I found that talking of marathon running, like that, my first marathon was really was the first time I saw this other way of living as well, like where I was capable of going out on a Sunday morning and running like 13 miles, you know, and coming back and feeling good about myself. And I was capable of making myself feel good with my own body rather than having to go to a pub or call up a drug dealer, you know. And that, I think, was a, another really important part of my journey, you know, was to realise that, that there was this other world out there where people got up and they went for runs instead of people came home and tried not to look at the people going for runs because they made them feel really bad because they've been out all night partying you know so mm. running has been a sort of like absolutely central part of my recovery well it was the, you were recovering before your recovery with your running uh, little did you know it at the time um and i saw you in in your first marathon you know and you, you'd never looked better you never look happier I'd known you for years uh, on and off um, yeah. and then I was so surprised um, I really was surprised if I'd have thought about it more maybe I wouldn't have been so surprised but I was so surprised to hear you, you crashed and burned big time after that first marathon yeah and I and you know what and like it's interesting though but that is the power of this illness is that you know the, all the layers of denial I'm running a marathon I looked I looked fucking amazing like at the end of my drinking I probably looked the best I've ever looked in my entire life but I was dead behind the eyes it's really funny that you say you were surprised because I've never brought this up but I have to rem I remember years ago 
being in an off license in like London, completely pissed, trying to buy alcohol or something and bumping into you and your wife. Do you remember this? I do remember it very well. Yeah. And you kind of mopped me up, the two of you, and looked after me. And I think you fed me pizza and like, and then gave me a lift back to my flat. And I remember that kindness and I was kind of horrified. I remember that was one of the things where I woke up the next morning and I was like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? But maybe I just looked like another fun girl out having a party. I don't know. Well, um, I, we, it didn't make it to the book. I was quite disappointed, to be honest. <laughs> Well, it was very kind of you. Thank you for feeding me that pizza. And um, yeah, but I also remember bumping into you and I must have been about four months sober doing a half marathon. Um, And I remember the interesting thing about marathon running, to go back to that, is that I thought that like when I got sober, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be even, I'm going to be really good at marathon running now. I'm going to be like really fast, really healthy. And let me tell you, running without a beer at the end was the hardest fucking thing. Like that was when I knew the power of my alcoholism was that it had got me through 26.2 miles because all I was thinking about during that first marathon was the bender I was going to go on that night. And without it, I remember doing my second marathon the year later and it just was the hardest thing I'd ever done. (laughs) It was like hideous because I was just basically running towards a burger in bed, you know, and I was like, well, that's what I do anyway. And I realised then the power of my alcoholism. It literally got me through a marathon. It's funny you should say that because I bet it's the same for so many people. It wasn't dissimilar for myself and it isn't, by the way. The, you know, when I'm training for a marathon now, the first thing I think about, well, it was up until the last one, is, is a fantastic bottle of red wine. A pint first, a fantastic bottle of red wine, then a big, fat, juicy steak. Uh, the steak days are over, but everything else is pretty much the same. But I read about your second marathon with your friend Jada and... Um, yeah. You were running in underwear that year. Big girls. What was the what was the tagline? Gutsy girls. Gutsy girls. Running in your underwear, uh, proud of your bodies, etc. Um, but it, and it was the hottest London Marathon on record. So a you forgiven uh, for feeling uh, well for hitting the walls on several occasions. But B, um, it could only have made it worse because it, we were all told to slow down. We were all t- so told to forget about our personal best. But then you got home, you could barely make it up the stairs and you spent 16 hours in bed. Is that right? Yeah. And I couldn't believe how the year before I basically, <laughs> I was like high as a kite and I'd gone home and no word of a lie, Chris. I think my friends had come around and we'd had, I'd gone through like three bottles of champagne. I mean, it was, it was like, it was it was like the best day of my life, you know? And, um, and I didn't know, I was like, how did I not drop down dead? It was astonishing to me. You know, I just went on this like week long bender after it. And I could barely, I could barely get up the stairs to my bed after the second sober, the, the sober one. And I was like, this isn't right. I'm kind of like desperate to do my next marathon. Well, when God knows when that will be now, but, um, to sort of remind myself of, the joyousness of running, you know, of long distance running when sober. Uh, your husband sounds like a superstar. I mean, an absolute superstar. There's one exchange. I'll try and find it while we're talking here. Um, here, here we go. Um, this is after the night um, after chapter one. 
after he comes back from his mum and dad, you were supposed to be there. You were supposed to be home 11 o'clock the night before. You didn't get until 11.30 a.m. that morning. And chapter one is all about that. I won't go into it. It's, it's unbelievably naked. It's unbelievably brutal. And I just want people to buy the book to read that chapter alone. But a conversation that night, uh, you, I'm a bad person. Harry, you're not a bad person. You're just an ill person who sometimes does bad things. You, do you think I'm an alcoholic? Harry, nodding slowly, yes. Yes, I do. Mm. Yeah, I remember when you said that, it was a relief. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it was a relief. Um, it was a really relief, like this thing that I tried to prove the whole my whole way through my life that I wasn't, like the most the biggest relief was just to say that I was. And I'm so lucky to have Harry. Um, he could see that before, a little way before I could. And I always joke that Harry's very kind of like stoical with a complete opposite. Do you know what I mean? But he, he knew he kind of had this loving patience and kindness with me that loads of people can work years and years in recovery to try and get, you know, and, um, Lots of people sober up and discovered that they're married to an asshole. I sobered up and discovered I was the asshole. <laughs> and um I he's he's wonderful. He really is. And I'm really lucky that in my life I have these, you know, he just he's supported me the whole way through it and never wavered. It, I don't I don't know if it's even occurred to him to waver, you know. He sometimes I say to him, Did you did you think about leaving me? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I just don't, he just was like, let's just get on with this. This is what I have, this is what we have to do, you know? And, um, so I'm very, you know, I am lucky to have him. Um, but my Peter, my counselor always said, well, maybe he gets something out of you, Bryony, as well. And that was like, there was a moment where I was like, what? No, it's, I always described Harry as like my carer. Do you know what I mean? And I couldn't believe that he, he enjoyed any bit of our relationship, you know. Um, but he tells me that I'm, you know, he does, you know, he does really love me and that, you know, he gets a lot out of being with me. So I, you know, I, I, I kind of, but yeah, he's, he's great, but he's also very, he doesn't, he's like really not interested in, um, reading anything I write or being part of like he doesn't want his pictures on Instagram or in the paper he's like absolutely not you know it's almost like he just it's another it's like a different I don't know it's like he just shelves it and we get on with our normal lives does he really exist <laughs> no I've made him up he does exist if I could find him right now I'd get him to come down and say hello <laughs> he's, he's by the pool uh, he does. He does genuinely exist. He does. I promise. I'll, 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 I'll like send you a picture of him. He's very handsome. He's very kind. He's a. Uh, he's he's a very serious journalist, <laughs> unlike me. So um, and he's you know he's great. He's a great dad. I'm very lucky. You know we yeah. we are lucky. The ones those of us that get sober, we are lucky. Uh, this is like you know as they say in twelve step meetings. This is a life beyond our wildest dreams. Yeah, and just, just yeah. you know, but always bear in mind, even when you're with somebody who's had a pint, if you've had a pint, you know, what's the harm in a pint? Well, there's no harm necessarily in a pint, but what you've got to bear in mind is that you're no longer talking to the person they were before they had the pint. You're now talking to a pint with a person attached and then two pints with a person attached and three pints with a person attached and then there's less room for the person and more room for the beer. And then basically it's one beer talking to another beer. Yeah, I like that. That's a really good, like, analogy. Um, Harry, my husband, is one of those people that can just have one drink. But he still gets hammered, doesn't he? 
sometimes, but he's like, there, there are people that can just go on the occasional bender and they're fine. And they don't like then like spiral out into an existential crisis because of it. Um, I've just had to accept that I'm not one of them. But he's he's like he does it, and I find I find nor, nor, quote unquote normal drinking really helpful. So, you know, at the beginning, my friends were like, "Oh, do you mind if I have a glass of wine?" And I'm like, "Go for it," because seeing people drink normally was really helpful to me because I realised I could never do that, and I have no interest. Like, if the, if some magic scientist came up with this kind of new pill that enabled me to drink moderately I wouldn't take it I'm not interested in drinking moderately at all do you know what I mean I just want oblivion if I was to choose to pick up a drink today it would be like I would want to black out and so it really is easier for me to have none than one um I don't know if that resonates in any way but so uh, I, I love being around people that that drink moderately or they don't like I'm on you know holiday with my husband and, and my best friend and her husband and kids and they just it doesn't it's not even like it's not even a theme of the holiday They're like oh maybe I'll have a glass of rosé and I find it astonishing that the like the recycling bin every morning isn't just like overflowing with bottles of beer and that like because when I went on holiday it was like all about the booze it was all about the sundowners you know and that would carry on well into the early hours of the morning. And it blows my mind that there are people that their, their lives aren't just constantly sort of framed by when they're next going to have a drink. And that's the thing I want to say, because I didn't drink all the time. Like I wasn't around the clock drinker, right? I was like, I don't drink in the morning unless I'd still been up from the night before, of course. And I didn't even drink every day. I drank every other day. And I was like, so I can't be an alcoholic, right? But it didn't, at the end, I realized it didn't really matter that I wasn't drinking all day because I was thinking about drinking all day. So I wasn't, there wasn't that, you know, it didn't make me any better that I was trying to resist it. In fact, it was worse. It was worse having to like resist all day. And just my whole week, everything was centered around when I'd have a drink. So if I had a big, you know, a big work thing on a Tuesday morning, that would mean I couldn't drink on a Monday night. So I had to drink on the Sunday night and so on and so forth. So my life was completely dictated by when I was going to have a drink or not. And, you know, not surprisingly, when you eventually pull yourself out of that, it's really quite amazing how much life you free up, you know. <laughs> There's so many things to do. Okay, so Brandy, please, um, if you don't mind, uh, walk us through what actually was, became, is, um, always will be or not, your horror show of a wedding day. Yeah, I feel quite, I feel quite sad when I, I can try, I can do that thing where I try and kind of laugh about my wedding day and, and sort of go, ha ha ha. But it was really sad, actually. I, I got married and obviously I love my husband very much. And obviously it was important to me. But it was, when I look back on my wedding day, it's a bit like realising that the most important, the, thinking the most important thing in my life was my husband and my child and realising it was alcohol. On my wedding day, it was really, the only thing I could think about was how much booze I could get down my neck and how I was going to keep myself, you know, on a level without kind of blacking out. And that was what I obsessed with. I woke up on my wedding day and I was excited. And I was excited, not because I was about to marry the love of my life, or I had a fabulous dress, or, you know, I was going to be around all the people I loved most in my life. I was excited because I had a legitimate excuse to get out of it on champagne. And, you know, as it turned out, a bit of cocaine. And I, I, you know, 
it 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 makes me feel a bit kind of oh, it makes me feel really sad to think about that you know and also getting married um it it provided me with this you know excuse like this kind of veneer of respectability like i was getting married so i couldn't have a problem right and i remember thinking when i got married i was like this is this is it i'm never going to drink irresponsibly again you know this is going to be this is this is going to cure me this is going to do for me what a course of rehab and a 12-step program will do for anyone else you know and of course that doesn't happen you know and the shame I think that mothers and wives and whatever feel because they've been you know the things that should turn you into a grown-up don't so my wedding day was all about getting as out of it as possible and that and that was what I achieved. And it was, you know, my wedding gift from a friend was some cocaine um, and cocaine. I, I loved because it not I realized I, I remember when I came in thinking I had a r- real cocaine problem. But I realized that cocaine was a problem that, that I, the reason I took cocaine was because it enabled me to drink more. Basically, it sobered me up. And I I sort of have to talk about that as well because I think it's a huge it is a huge problem in in the UK cocaine use you know it goes hand in hand with binge drinking really and um yeah so I found myself um you know I ended my wedding night um not kind of like in the loving arms of my husband uh you, you know and thinking wow what a beautiful day but basically locked in the bathroom of our um bridal suite if you will um, basically drinking flat champagne, smoking fags and, and watching porn. Like, I can't believe I just said that like on radio to you, Chris, but like it was, you know, cocaine just made me, it took me to much darker places than, than I, than alcohol did. And in a way I'm really grateful for it because it, it brought me down much quicker, if that makes sense. Like it took me to really seedy, awful places. And I sort of shuddered to think of how long I could have stayed out there in that kind of groundhog day existence of, of hangovers and alcohol, you know, it, alcohol, it was bad, but I could convince myself that it was normal. You know, everyone drank alcohol, right? But the cocaine took it to another level. So yeah, that was my wedding night. And it does make me feel really sad. And I wonder if maybe we should get married again. I was going to ask you that because, you know, as, as I read the book and you take us through the, that particular day, chapter and verse, as you do, um, and it is it is inspiring. It's really ironically inspiring, you know. And as I ended the page to do with your wedding day, I thought, well, surely she must renew her vows. Now, not not like, you're, well, you're, you must renew your vows. I thought that must be something you, you are yearning to do, but maybe I'm being presumptuous. Well, also, I think that, like, it's really interesting. Like my priorities have changed in life. Like a wedding day was important for me because it was like, Hey, look, Bridie's got married. She's a responsible, respectable adult, you know? And it was about what it represented and what it, what it could show other people. Whereas now I don't, I don't really feel I need all of that. Like we know we love each other. I don't need, do you know what I mean? We don't, I don't need to do that. Like sobriety is enough of me. I don't know. Maybe it's like, an everyday living renewal of my vows to my husband, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no there's no better way for you saying thank you to him than never let, letting him down again, you know, or never letting that Bryony um, let him down again, you know. I have a very good friend in recovery um, and one of his favourite sayings, and there are loads and there are some in your book and they're, they're usually hilarious. He says, if I wasn't an alcoholic, I could get drunk every night. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's true. I honestly, I I remember at the beginning, I I remember going to a Christmas party and I was talking to this woman, and I didn't hear a word she said. I was just focusing on the fact she had a flute of champagne in her hand, <clears throat> and she didn't touch it for twenty minutes, Chris. She didn't touch it. It was just, I mean, she didn't drink it. It was just, she was just standing with this fucking flute of champagne in her hands. And I was like, what is wrong with you? You're allowed to drink for fuck's sake, drink. And then I realized why I wasn't allowed to drink. Do you know what I mean? Like, I will obsess. I'm like, do you have a, I remember going to some awards dinner with Holly, my best friend. And, um, and uh, and we spent the whole evening basically panicking for on behalf of everyone at our table because the waiters weren't refilling their glasses of wine quick enough, you know. And I'm like, this is why we're not allowed to drink. This is it. I'm like, God, that's yeah. done. What is funny, again, um, if you look at it from one perspective and very sad again, if you look at it from another, is the bender you went on in recovery without breaking the rules. Tell us about that. Yes. So, um, yeah, I managed to go on a bender in sobriety, which which might surprise some people. And you think, how could you possibly do that? But I don't know if you've noticed, like, out the, sh- the alcohol section in supermarkets now is uh, has a huge amount of non-alcoholic alcohol on its shelves. Do you know what I mean? Like, sobriety, you know, it's definitely sobriety is 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 a market now right and uh so you can buy sort of uh gin alternatives for that cost as much as you know platinum um <laughs> and non-alcoholic beer and i remember my uh and and and, and like no secco they've all got these awful names do you know what I mean? so you can sort of like and i understand the need for them and especially like early on in sobriety when you're trying to navigate it and if you have to go out like clutching a non-alcoholic version of 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 alcohol can obviously it it means people don't ask questions right but um just before I got a year's sobriety I was sort of like I I was really struggling and um it was boiling hot it was one of the well all summers are boiling hot now and I remember Harry was out one night and I decided I was gonna go and get some non-alcoholic beer and I stood in the supermarket and um, bought two bots, so eight bottles of non-alcoholic beer, and uh, and and then I went to the I went to the counter and I bought a packet of fags. And I remember the woman going, "Oh, planning a party," and I sort of just sniggered at how tragic this was, like a party with eight bottles of non-alcoholic lager. And uh, and I went home and I remember sitting in the garden and it was like the same, all of the kind of paraphernalia of drinking and all of the kind of routine of it was exactly the same, right? I remember getting out the bottle opener from the from the cutlery drawer and the and and pouring it into a glass and seeing that amber liquid and and I remember like feeling the cold against my forehead with the cut, you know, with the with the glass. I, it was all so evocative. And I sat in the garden and I drank this non-alcoholic beer and then I continued to drink the non-alcoholic beer. And then within about an hour, I had drunk all eight bottles of this non-alcoholic beer. And I was in this sort of, I'd worked myself up into this sort of fury. And I knew that I was, it, what I was doing, you know, I knew that the next st- step of my non-alcoholic uh, bender was an alcoholic 
bender do you know what I mean and I knew then that I could not touch these things safely again it, you know it tasted like beer but it wasn't beer can you imagine just sitting there I was trying to capture that same kind of like feeling of getting out of it in my garden without getting out of it and it was awful it was absolutely awful and I I remember my my counselor Peter he always said to me non-alcoholic beer is for non-alcoholics Bryony and I just don't go near it anymore it's it's not for me I can't you know I didn't drink for the taste let's put it that way <laughs> it is funny, isn't it? That part of it is funny. No, it was. It is comic. It is comic. I just felt like this tragic figure. I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm yeah. going to sit in my garden by myself, you know, drinking this terrible version of, of beer that wasn't beer that gave me no buzz. It didn't change my feelings at all. In fact, it made them more pronounced. I was so frustrated. <laughs> it's awful. So, um, yeah, that I learned a lesson that. That, that day, that night. My friend also says uh, that no matter how many miles he drives, he's only a few feet away from the ditch. Yeah, yeah. You have to do it every day. You have to work this stuff every day. Like, I see it as being, I'm like um, a mobile phone, and if I don't charge myself up every day, I will forget. I will forget the stuff that I learn. And it's, I mean, this is decades of conditioning, right? So I kind of wake up in the morning and I feel great. And as the day goes on, my sobriety sort of leaches out, my kind of mental sobriety, if you see emotional sobriety, le is leached out of me by the day. And by four o'clock, I can still be thinking, you know, what can I do to get out of my head? Maybe I could eat a load of food or, you know shop manically online and um and that's when I know I you know I you need to be working a I personally can't speak for anyone else need to be working a 12-step program and that's when I bugger off to a meeting because they say you know that um recovery isn't a sunshine solution it's a it's a desert of survival yeah there's another saying that is, I have to be really careful here and I, and I want to make it really clear. I'm not trying to be like a poster girl for sobriety or, you know, or an expert in alcoholism. I'm just like telling my story in the hope that it might, you know, help one other person really. And, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to sell the 12 step program. I can only speak for myself about it's cause there's, there's, there's lots of kind of traditions and stuff like that about breaking an anonymity and stuff and I would never obviously break anyone else's anonymity only my own but um I don't speak for the 12-step program and I and I wouldn't push it on anyone else either but um yeah that what there's there are it, it I it is what keeps me sober on a day-to-day -day basis there's a, there's another saying which is that um you know while we're sober our, our alcoholism is off doing press-ups basically you know oh, wow. and it will and it will and it will find its way in and I, I i you know i can see i find myself like the you know i can go months and months without thinking about alcohol now but then suddenly it will be on me like a kind of like an elephant do you know what i mean standing on my chest and i'm like what the fuck where did that come from <clears throat> i find it very hard at like bank holiday weekends and actually i find the sun i find the sun really triggering um in terms of because you know, in my head, it was, that's when I start to romanticize drinking, right? And like, the, the, you know, the lovely sitting outside by the river or whatever, or in a beer garden, having a lovely time, you know, in a, on a holiday or whatever. And that's when I have to be really careful. Because actually, you know, those awful nights of that ended in assault and goodness knows what, yeah, they, they, they were awful. But the really dangerous nights, 
were the ones where that kind of stuff didn't happen, right? And where the drinking was nice and it was convivial and you were with your friends. And then the next day, because those are the ones that can seduce you and drag you back in, right? Like it's, it's very dangerous. Those are the most dangerous nights to me. Um, And I need to kind of almost forget those and remember the really grim stuff, you know? Well, alcohol's been at this for centuries. You're just a beginner. I am. I'm just, I'm a baby. I don't know anything really. I can only tell my story. Alcohol is, yeah, it's, you know, it's God. It's, you know, this is, this isn't, this isn't you, the stuff I'm talking about, you know, this is, I, and I won't be the last person to talk about it. And there are probably people listening right now who are wondering how they, you know, if they they have a problem and, you know, if there's any way out of this and, you know, there is, there is a way out of it. You just have to hold tight and, you know, remember that I think people who have experienced alcoholism are so strong, you know, Drinking would give me Dutch courage, but sobriety's made me properly brave. And the things that we would put ourselves through when we're drinking, like if you can survive that stuff, you can get sober. You can damn well get sober, you know. Like it's a miracle that I'm alive, that I'm sitting here in my bikini talking to you on my laptop, you know, (laughs) and that I'm about to celebrate three years of sobriety. That stuff is a fucking miracle, you know? And and that's why I run marathons in my underwear because my body, you know, it may not be traditionally beautiful or whatever, but it's kept me alive, you know, and it didn't have to, it really didn't have to. And the, the, the fine lines on evenings between coming back and surviving the night and not coming back I realized they were just vanishingly small do you know what I mean and um it's absolutely it is miraculous that I'm still alive and um I don't really know where I'm going with this but it's oh yeah and I and I I I'm I'm so glad I survived alcohol basically where are you going with this is gratitude. You're just trying to be grateful. You can't be grateful enough, and that's why you keep saying the things you're saying it, from, from what I'm hearing. But also, Holly Holly is your sober birthday twin as well, isn't she? She is, yeah. She is. 27th of August, 2017. Yeah, so we, we, we were in treatment together, and we uh, had the same... Yeah, had the same sobriety day and lived a mile away from each other. And I was like, God, all along you were there. And, you know, I don't, I, I do, I don't think it's an accident that we were, you know, that we found ourselves in the same treatment centre at the same time, you know. And I, and sometimes I wonder if all of my drinking and all of that pain all existed to lead me to Holly. Do you know what I, does, that sounds ridiculous. It sounds like some sort of love affair. Um, it's a friendship, you know. It's a really strong friendship, and I. I don't know how I would have got sober without her. And that, and that's the important thing um, is that we we all need each other. You know, that's the amazing thing about 12-step um, fellowships is it's we all get sober by, you know, supporting each other. Um, and I always say this, that mental illness, um, what all mental illnesses have in common, and that's, you know, be it from, you know, anxiety and depression all the way through to psychosis and, and alcoholism, obviously, is that they lie to you. And they tell you you're a freak and they tell you that you're alone and they tell you that nobody's going to understand what you're going through. And that's certainly the case with alcoholism. And once you, um, once you sort of like 
break through that lie and see it for the lie it is. You are on the road to recovery. You're not immediately cured, but you're on the road to recovery. And the power of knowing that you are not alone, that you that you are not the only person who has behaved in this way or who thinks these things or feels these things or who wakes up in the morning and the first thought is, what a fuck up I am. The power in knowing that is huge. And anytime I want to sort of like blow a hole in the like, the notion that I am this kind of unique, tortured person and no one understands what I'm going to go through, what I'm going through or what I feel, I pick up the phone and I call Holly and I remember, nope. <laughs> There are millions of people all around the world right now going through similar things, you know, and we're all much stronger for admitting to them, I think. I I, I just, it breaks my heart to think of people sort of sitting alone in their heads and thinking that they are evil and the worst person in the world because of this shitty illness that exists, you know, and there is a solution to it, but it, but we need to talk about it for people to be able to get there. Tell us about that first trip after borrowing eight thousand pounds to rehab, and tell us tell us about like you know the sort of seminal first few things that happened on the first okay. visit. <laughs> so I don't know what in my head I had. Re- well, obviously I thought rehab it was going to be like waffle robes and you know Are you okay, Bryony, and then literally I walked through the door and I got handed a tube to piss into. Um, is that what you're talking about? Just take us through whatever you remember. Yes, it is, because that's in the book. So, that yeah, absolutely. But anything you like. Yeah, so um, obviously uh, we had to be drink and drug tested um, to check that we had no alcohol or drugs in our system. And I remember just being, like, completely, hum- not humbled, but, like, and all the wind came out of my sails and I and I I don't know what I thought that this person this person was just like I, he he just saw me for what I was which was another alcoholic an addict who had fallen so fucking low that they'd ended up in this treatment center having to piss you know in a bottle to prove that they were sober and and that was really where I'd got myself to um and I remember also the my first session sitting there with these people and in my head, you know, it was all about me. I was like, I am, you know, if this was a movie, if this was a movie, you know, we'd go around in the circle and everyone would say their names and that they're an alcoholic or an addict. And then it'd get to me and I'd stand up and I'd say, my name's Bryony and I'm an alcoholic. And I'd tell my story and everyone would be weeping and applauding, you know, that I'd been brave enough to bring that my stuff here and, and say it out loud. And of course, nobody gave a shit. <laughs> Because everyone there was there for the same reasons. Do you know what I mean? And I remember I'm like telling these, I'm like bravely admitting that like the lowest I've gone. And everyone's like, yeah, me too. Next, you know, and it was, it's really good for you. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was, um, it was a very strange, weird thing. And I did feel like a child. I felt like I was going back to school in many ways but I'm I feel so grateful that I managed to get into treatment because I it, it it totally you know sent me down onto the road of recovery um and, I'm, and I've made friends for life hopefully but not without, and but not Peter. without yeah and Peter as well uh, but not without its bumps so what about the night you came home from rehab and your mum and your husband were sharing a bottle of wine together that could not have been easy oh my god I hated them I hated them they, were, they had a bottle of red wine, Chris. And they were like, but you never drank red wine. I'm like, that's not the point. 
Uh, I couldn't believe it because the world all revolved around me, right? Um, and I remember they poured it down the sink and I remember the smell hitting my nose and I just was sick. I was sick. Um, I, I, yeah, it was awful. And then I, I couldn't sleep. You know, I thought because I wasn't around the clock drinker, I didn't have to detox. A lot of people get sober and they have to detox. It's really dangerous to suddenly stop drinking. But I hadn't, I hadn't bargained for this sort of like, it took, it probably took me about eight months before my sleep got back to normal. I mean, I couldn't sleep. And I was, when I did fall asleep, it was like, I was, my body was sweating out everything, you know, decades of abuse and toxins. And I felt like I'd gone several rounds with like Mike Tyson when I woke up. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And my skin looked like the fucking crater of the moon. Do you know what I mean? It was like, everything was coming out and I just it was it was frightening actually to to see to see the effects that alcohol can have on your body and I um I remember one night being so tortured by this that I swigged like a bottle of night nurse um to knock myself out and I had my first night of sleep in weeks and weeks and I told Peter at rehab the next day about this and he was like I'm afraid I'm gonna have to suspend you because that's a using incident and I was like what do you mean it's a using incident he was like well you didn't use take the night nurse because you had a cold did you You took it to knock yourself out that is a using incident and um (laughs) I was completely blown away and I and I started to see you know piece together in my mind all the different using incidents that existed in my life that had nothing to do with alcohol do you know what I mean like knocking myself out with a sleeping pill or uh it does that make I don't know if that makes any sense you know it was a real like it was a real learning curve eyes opening to how much of my life was about blotting it all out actually well, yeah, it makes complete sense because it's about taking something very small in liquid form or otherwise to make yourself feel different as quickly as possible. That is using, isn't it? Yeah, luckily I, I was randomly, I, I, he Peter tested me and it didn't turn up positive, so I didn't get suspended. But I did have friends who would like, they'd eaten like pop bread with poppy seeds in and then they tested positive for opium. <laughs> It was like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, fucking hell. And then towards the my last day, I tested positive for alcohol because I'd eaten a meal before with pasta that had like a white wine sauce on it that I, and I just, you know, and and now I'm really careful. Like I wouldn't, I, I, I don't eat anything that has alcohol really in it. You know, like I remember going to some work lunch and the dessert was, I remember putting it in my mouth and there were like these very important people in this conference room, this, uh, you know, executive room in the offices. And it was a very important lunch. And I put the dessert in my mouth and I literally thought I was going to die. The taste of the alcohol in it. And I was like, how am I going to spit this out in front of these very important people? Um, And I sort of had to like put it in a napkin and give it to Matt, the cartoonist who was sitting next to me. It was at the Telegraph. And I, I literally, my body, if I, if I like encounter alcohol now, like in a sweet or something, like a chocolate, my body lights up like a Christmas tree. 
It's funny because now you're allergic to alcohol. And it's, you know, Richard E. Grant, I've often talked to him, as I'm sure you have, and he said, I don't drink because I'm allergic to alcohol. But he's not an alcoholic. He's just the first time he ever had it, he threw up. And, and you know, many alcoholics are allergic to alcohol, for, but for some reason they've just strong-armed um, their own sort of um, issue, their own vulnerability to alcohol, to the point at which, you know, it's like, I suppose you could call it in a more sort of uh, ele- elegant way, way you could call it they they've acquired the taste they've overcome the the chemical issue of things that are bad for them to the extent that it doesn't affect them anymore they're they've become immune to to the thing that's gonna uh, ruin their life i i the first time i drank alcohol i vomited everywhere and i but like (laughs) some people would be like well i'm just or i remember the first time i drank alcohol like feeling really woozy and with my my friend was like well i'm gonna stop and i'm like no, the wooziness is not a reason to stop. The wooziness is a reason to carry on because I wanted to go back to that. And I was like, if I carry on drinking, maybe I'll get back to that hallowed place, which was the, the, the way I felt when I first sipped the alcohol. You know, God, I mean, the tolerance that you build up. People said, you've got the constitution of an ox, Bryony. But really, I was like a duck. <laughs> I was like a duck who was like serene above water, but frantically paddling below to stay afloat, you know. God, alcohol is... I mean, if I if I was to have a drink now, I'd probably <laughs> drop down dead. I, I, I get... I'm high as a kite with coffee now. And you're back on the fags, aren't you? Yeah, I love the fag. Right. Um, I'm like, I deserve this. And I'm like, sure, babes, you deserve a cancerous stick that's almost certainly going to shorten your life. You go for it. And I realised the madness of it. But I'm, I only smoke about two or three a day. I'm not like a proper... By the way, no, I'm not having a go at all. It's just that uh, you went to... When you first mean somebody said, do you smoke? Because if you won't, you will in about a minute from now. Well, I can't... <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They said... Um, yeah, if you don't smoke, do start because they, when you when you get sober, they're like, don't. They were said to us certainly, don't try and give up smoking as well because it's like disastrous. Do you know what I mean? Like trying to do everything at once and smoking is often one of the first things that any of us get addicted to. Um, it was certainly my first poison, but uh, yeah, I, I I I needed something to get me through those hard oh god I smoked like a, a chimney in rehab but yeah I've now got it down to two or three I should probably just quit but you know life's too short I mean I suppose life's even shorter isn't it when you're smoking <laughs> anything that's better um than uh, drinking some lovely quotes in the book someone also in sobriety told Bryony she says here in her book it was like driving a car at 90 miles an hour and then suddenly braking only to find everything in the boot suddenly with you in the front seat, or at least it would be if I'd ever learned to drive, which having been too busy being an alcoholic, I hadn't. So, or your life is waiting for you in the trunk of the car. You slam the anchors on and it goes, here we are. Here's all your shit. This is what you need yeah. to sort out. Yeah, I remember when I got to about 10 months of sobriety, I suddenly started sobbing and I didn't think I was ever going to stop. I literally didn't stop crying for about three months and um, and I couldn't work out why it was. I was like, I'm sober now, I should be happy. And then I describe it as well as like, it's like the rug has literally been pulled out from underneath you, right? And the rug, you realise, is like hiding all of this shit, basically, and dirt and stains. And you're like, put the rug back, put the rug back (laughs) immediately. (laughs) But you can't put the rug back. You can't unsee what's underneath the rug. So you have to start working at it to kind of like, you know, scrub the stains out or whatever. And that was what getting sober was like. It was like I didn't 
automatically feel amazingly better. It, it was like I had to start to deal with all the shit I'd been drinking on for ages. Um, and, and, and also, but it wasn't even just like, it wasn't like a dramatic emotional, like, oh, I have to deal with, you know, the trauma of having mental illness as a child or anything like that. It was like really simple stuff. Like I noticed that we basically lived in chaos. Like we were basically living in the old curiosity shop and everything was going to, we just clutter everywhere. And we were all going to, I felt like any moment now I was going to like die under an avalanche of, you know, books and, or, you know, I didn't know where my daughter's birth certificate was, or I, I couldn't work out if I had, you know, been for a smear test or something like that. And when did I last go to the dentist? It was those really tiny things <laughs> that I, I realized my life was completely unmanageable. And it amazes me. And I also remember I've sobered up and Trump is president and Brexit's happening. I, I was glad to be sober for, you know, the coronavirus because I, I just I, I saw it coming. I soberly processed it and I got on with it. You know, thank God. Thank God I was sober for lockdown because I, you know, I, my heart really goes out to people who um, are struggling with alcohol at this time. I, I just can't imagine how difficult it must be. For somebody who doesn't believe in God, you have said thank God more during this interview than anybody else I've ever interviewed in my life. I, okay, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there's like a man with a beard up in the sky. <laughs> what I do believe is that like there is, oh, there, there's, there's something a hell of a lot bigger than me out there. I'm like inconsequential really. And, um, and and that, and that I believe that I don't know best. I don't know best at all. I don't always know what's good for me. And, you know, and I, and I have learned humility through, through getting sober. Um, and you may go, Hmm, you've just appeared for an hour and 15 minutes on Chris Evans's <laughs> uh, podcast talking about your book. That's not very humble, but anyway, we, um, I, I there is, you know, look, I only have to watch like blue Planet to see that there's something bigger than me out there, right? Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, the world is fantastic. It's incredible. It's mind-blowing, you know? The fact that we exist at all, the fact that, you know, any of us, I think I said, you know, I, I, I've always said this, like, the fact that any of us exist is a miracle. Do you know what I mean? Like, the chances of being are, like, lower than, you know, there's more chances, like, the dinosaurs re-walking the earth or, or I don't know... Uh, I'm trying to think of some like timely um, analogy about coronavirus or something. But anyway, there's, you know, the, 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 the chances of existing as a human and coming to be are, are absolutely tiny. You know, the, the journey that the sperm has to make to the egg, if the egg's actually there. And if your mum and dad had been interrupted or, you know, dad had, you know, ha it had happened five seconds later or five seconds earlier, you know, you could be a whole different person. And, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I'm really not making any sense now, but um, the world is magnificent and it's there to be enjoyed and discovered, really. So I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a traditional view of God, but I do believe there is something amazing and bigger than me out there. I mean, you don't have to give it a name. That's the thing, you know. But the, it, that's what surrender's all about. You know, every every morning when I come into work, I write it down on a piece of paper, stick it in front of me, surrender, surrender to the moment, surrender to all expectations. You know, uh, just, you know, it's fine to have a goal. It's fine to have a vector. Uh, but then you you dig deep. You believe in what you're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you think about other people first, you can't go far wrong. It says here at the start of Chapter 7, why not 
I was being driven sane. Wow. That's that's a magical sentence. You know, I was really chuffed with myself when I came up with that one. Um, yeah, I was driven sane. It was one. It's been wonderful. It's been absolutely joyous. Like it's like learning how to live. You know, um, and here, everything that I had tried to hide with alcohol, someone came along and was like, "Here's how to do it in a health, healthy and helpful way, Bryony." Do you know what I mean? Like, here's how to process this stuff. And yeah, and you're you're right about. Um, putting others ahead of you know I oh, I don't know it's it's so much bigger than me I I uh I'm um yeah but I was just, I was mad I was properly mad I was properly mad you know I was really unwell and and I have been driven sane and it's it's it blows my mind every day it blows my mind that I get up I just get up Chris I just get up and I kind of do the things and I don't wake up in the morning and think oh I'm such a piece of shit. Why did I do that last night? Or what did I do? Like, that isn't my first thought. My first thought is, good morning. What are we going to do today? You know, and the power of that simple switch in your mind is, is incredible. The fact that I'm just sitting here talking to you this morning, I got up and I, 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 I like, you know, I hoovered and mopped the floor and, and uh, I did a wash and, made myself a pot of fresh coffee <laughs> and took my daughter swimming. And those are like little things, I think, to lots of people. And, but to me and lots of other people, they're huge, you know, the ability to do those. So can we agree we're not 100% of anything, but we are part of 100% of everything? Should we leave it there? Yeah, that sounds... Have you thought of writing a book? <laughs> well, I've book. written three. Thanks for reading them, by the way. That's why I just corrected myself and said another book. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, so this is book number five. Um, let's just talk briefly about that before we say ta-da. Um, you know, one of the fears is always, isn't it, you know, um, the booze is the muse. Oh, I, you know what, I did worry about that. I'm like, well, I'm anything to write about now. But um, no, I think I'm probably done with non-fiction. I, I don't I don't really I, I can't imagine I have anything left of my life to to write about. But that's in terms of like like sad nonfiction of, of like bad things happening to me. I hope that that part of my life is over. But no, I find it's I'm constantly thinking of things I want to write about. So I'm just about I'm just started a book, which is like all the things I've learned about being mentally well from being mentally ill, basically. So it's like a collection of essays of, yeah, just the kind of stuff that I've learned to keep myself well, really, as I get asked lots of stuff on Instagram and, you know, about how I, you know, got better or whatever. But then I'm going to try my hand at some fiction, I think. Why well, not? Yeah, I think I think that's that's you know just reading your book again, and who knows, I could be entirely wrong. It's been known, but I think that's all part of it. You know, it's denying yourself the talent that you might have in case you might not have it, and it's all that you know that self medication, that anaesthetism. It's all part of the same thing. Do I really want to find out how good I am at the risk of not being as good as I want to be? And now you've got the freedom to do that. Well, I hope, you know, I've just, it's like real, it's such an honour, Chris, to have you have me back on or to have me on at all. And I count my blessings 
every day. Oh, here I go again. Thank God. Thank God. And I, you know, I'm a really lucky human. And, you know, thank you for allowing me to talk about this for ages. And, you know, what a fucking privilege. Anything, you know, if it never gets better than this, that's fine. I feel I've achieved something. If I just end up baking banana bread for the rest of my life, that's totally fine as well. I, I, you know, today is great and that's all I have. Well, the banana bread um, revelation is amazing. You have to buy the book for that. You have to buy it for chapter one and everything else in between. Bryony, it is absolutely gorgeous to talk to you. Well done on writing this book. That first chapter will blow anybody who picks this book up away. And how would you not read on from there? Uh, you're amazing. Give my love. Great respect to Harry, to Peter and to Holly and all our love to Eddie. Thank you so much, Chris. You're an absolute star. Thank you for talking about this stuff. It's brilliant and giving voice to it. Well, friends, there you go. You've been listening to How to Wow, starring Bryony Gordon and brought to you by M&S Plan Kitchen. Whether you're going veggie, avoiding meat or dairy, or simply enjoying incorporating more plant-based foods into your diet, the M&S Plant Kitchen range makes every meal or snack delicious. The dishes range from on-the-go sandwiches, my personal favourite is no egg and watercress, and grain bowls, hearty quick-fix suppers, and their amazing No Chicken Kiev, which, when it launched in January this year, saw sales for M&S of one No Chicken Kiev every four minutes. Now that's demand, and that's M&S Plant Kitchen. Proud sponsors of How to Wow. See you next time. P.S. Rate and subscribe. <laughs>